episode of the Been There, Read That podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Batty, and this program, as always, is brought to you by ChristianResearcher.com. If this is your first time listening to the program, do us a favor and subscribe to the program. You can subscribe to it on Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, and iTunes. Uh, Subscribe to it, leave some comments and feedback about the program after you've listened to an episode or two, and share it with your friends so we can expand our listening audience. Each week we discuss uh, different religious books of wide variety. Sometimes I just talk about books that I'm reading, give you a little bit of background on new authors and new books. Other times we target specific authors or specific books and do a full book review or an author review. Today we're going to go a little bit different direction. I'll give you a little bit of background on on what I'm doing and why I'm reading in the line that I'm reading in right now. In a study that I do with some congregational teachers and local members, on a weekly basis, I, I give out a sign reading, and right now we are studying through the Pentateuch. We just finished reading T. Desmond Alexander's book, From Paradise to the Promised Land, which is a pretty good introduction. I say we finished reading it. We read the beginning of chapter 7 onward. The first six chapters is a review of the documentary hypothesis. T. Desmond Alexander in that he is good and that he argues against the documentary hypothesis, but he's not so good in the fact that he doesn't argue for mosaic authorship. But anyway, we read the second half of that book. It's a pretty good read. It's helpful in a lot of ways to paint the big picture view. And now what we're going to do is we're going to begin in Genesis and read a commentary in Genesis, then one, read one for Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, right now we're starting off reading uh, the Focus on the Bible commentary, Genesis by Richard P. Belcher, Jr. Um, if you haven't read that, if you're not familiar with it at all, it's worth the price of the book for the introduction. I don't know what the rest of the book's going to be like. We'll discover that as we go along. But the introduction is fantastic because he gives you a, a brief introduction to the documentary hypothesis and the problems that come with that, and then he spends quite a bit of time discussing theistic evolution, the gap theory, the day-age view, uh, arguing with different positions that are arguing for literal days but not sequential days. He deals with literary framework theory. All these false views about Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. He does a really good job of concisely setting forth and being fair about setting forth the true position of different guys as they approach Genesis 1 and then interacting with that. He spends a lot of time dealing with C. John Collins and his problematic material. If you listen to last week's episode, I did an episode about bad guys, guys that you shouldn't read or avoid, and John Collins made the list, and Richard Belcher Jr., interacts with his material. He's quite a famous author and has had a lot of influence in the kind of the direction of theistic evolution. But anyway, that's what we're reading right now. Uh, We'll be in there for about seven weeks, I think, and then have a book picked out for Exodus. But as I was looking ahead, I was trying to think of what we were going to read when we got to the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I kind of have one picked out for Deuteronomy. But when I think about Leviticus, I've never read a book on Leviticus, an entire book. That's certainly not a commentary. And so I thought I probably better start working, looking ahead, trying to find some material that will be helpful. So there's a couple challenges that come with that. 
Number one, there's going to be some issues, some major hang-ups when you come to the book of Leviticus in regards to the Ten Commandments. Do we still keep the Ten Commandments? Uh, Why are there similarities between the Old Covenant from Sinai and the New Covenant, which Jesus gives? And so you have to be aware of that going into it. That's kind of the chicken and bones that we talk about. Uh, The other difficulty with it is, is finding someone that is an interesting writer makes the book come to life and is also readable. Uh, Not all commentaries that are helpful and have good material are exactly readable. And what I mean by that is a lot of them are quite technical. And what I'm doing in this particular study is trying to introduce people to the books of the Pentateuch in an encouraging matter that will kind of whet their appetite, give them a good solid foundation, a good big picture view, and help them dive further into the book. And that's critically important with Leviticus because Leviticus is one of the least appreciated books in the Pentateuch, at least by modern standards. I find it ironic in a lot of the reading and research I've done so far, one of the comments that most of the commentators make is that Leviticus was the favorite book of Israel. When we think about the covenant law given at Sinai, we oftentimes phrase it in, in terms like it was burdensome or it was an oppressive law, it was something that they couldn't bear up under, it was something that they had to hate, we're thankful that we don't have to live under that law. That's not how they viewed it. They had more of a, my yoke is easy and my burden is light type of mentality. They love the book of Leviticus. It was the first book that they started teaching their children. It's considered the pinnacle of of the Pentateuch studies and how different that view is from modern day readers. And I have to admit, uh, kind of ashamed of how I viewed the book of Leviticus at times in my past. And so I'm wanting to find something that brings the book to life, uh, gives some practical application for Christian readers and to Christian life but uh, is helpful and foundational for the book as a whole. So as I started reading and studying, everybody quotes from Gordon J. Wenham. He wrote the uh, Leviticus volume in the New International Commentary of the Old Testament, and Wenham's commentary is kind of considered the gold standard I've, I've gathered. Everybody interacts with Wenham. Even where they don't agree, they find it important to clarify why they disagree with Wenham. He wrote a very extensive, it's rather technical read, it covers all your bases, so to speak. And this isn't, Wenham's commentary isn't what I'm looking for exactly. That would be a good reference to have. It's something that I have on my shelf, and now I know that I do need to consult it and interact with it more if, you know, if I want to study deeper into Leviticus. But it's not the first level where you're going to go. It's certainly not going to be the book that whets people's appetite. So uh, one of the authors that I really enjoy, I have most of the books that he's written. I don't say everything he's written because he has a pen that never runs dry. His name is James E. Smith. He's a Christian church preacher. Uh, he taught for 40 years at a Florida Christian university, and he's retired, and he's taken all of his class notes and material, and he's published a ton, uh, I mean literally a ton of material. I probably have like 55 or 60 books that he's written. Anyway, Smith has a commentary on Leviticus that's presenting a big picture of you, and so I pulled that down, started looking at it, and one of the downsides of Smith's book is that uh, he doesn't do a lot with structure and transitional stuff. Um, it's it's more of a surface-level read than what I was wanting to do in this group. I want to have a surface-level big-picture view, but I'm also wanting to have some really solid structure going on and a little bit of depth to it uh, so that everybody can benefit from it because we have kind of different levels of, of readership in our group. Um, another thing with Smith is Smith is a little bit problematic when he comes to the Ten Commandments. And what I mean by that, he wrote a book I've read part of, I just put it down and quit reading it, because it was is a bad book. I like most everything that Smith writes, but I do not like his book. It's called God's Law, Our Compass. And he does a, 
a bad job in that book explaining the purpose of the Ten Commandments, and he essentially kind of argues that the Ten Commandments are still in play and still binding upon Christians' lives, and I find that view very problematic. If you have questions about that or want to know some more about that, we can just email us at christianresearcher at gmail.com, and we can try to interact with you and, and have some discussion about that. But anyway, as I read through Smith, I, I wasn't really fond of it, unfortunately. As much as I love Smith, it wasn't the book that I was looking for. So I kept searching. I came across the mentor commentary on the book of Leviticus by Robert Vashals. Uh, the Mentor Commentary series, positive part about it is that it's written for more laymen like myself and most of my readers and our listeners. Um, they are a full inspiration of the Bible view. They are from a Reformed background, so with Reformed theology, you often have covenant theology as well, which means the Old Testament is still binding in our life, so you have some of that problematic baggage. And as I was reading through uh, Vachol's introduction, I didn't find him very helpful. That's not to say that his commentary won't be helpful in some areas, but as far as introduction goes, I didn't find his introduction very helpful, certainly not as helpful as some that I found later. So my search continued. Uh, one commentary that I have on my shelf was recommended to me by Brother Ron Quarter. It's uh, written by Alan P. Ross. It's published by Kriegel Publications. And what I've read of Ross, I really enjoy. Uh, he's He's kind of got the big picture view in mind. He's not going into super depth, but he is a, a good Bible scholar. There's plenty to chew over and mull over. The downside of this commentary is that it's 496 pages. Um, that's about 200 pages longer than what I was looking for for this group. Not to say that it's a bad book or that it's not worth the read. I think it probably is worth the read, but... As far as an introductory work, trying to get folks who have never read through Leviticus, who may be hesitant about reading through Leviticus, to bite off 500 pages, I think is a little bit ambitious. And for that reason, I'm going to use Alan Ross as a, a, cons a consulting commentary, maybe for some extra recommended reading for folks if they want to you know, chase down a few rabbit trails or something like that. But as our first introductory review, I just kind of put it to the side. Another one that I picked up was the Bible Speaks Today series, which I typically like a lot. The Bible Speaks Today series, the author of the Leviticus volume is Derek Tidball. Now, one of the things that Tidball was helpful with in his introduction was that he attacks Calvin's threefold breakdown of the old laws. Calvin was the one who came up with this concept. Maybe he wasn't the first one. He was at least the one that popularized it. I'll put it that way. Calvin started advocating that there are moral laws, ceremonial laws, and civil laws. And the ceremonial laws and civil laws have passed away, but moral law continues. That is an extremely problematic position because, first of all, the Old Testament doesn't break itself down in that manner. Whenever you had commands, you couldn't go to the Old Testament and say, well, you know, I have to keep this command as an Israelite because it's a moral one, but I don't really have to keep this one over here because it's only civil or it's ceremonial. That's not how it worked. You had, If you were bound by any part of the law, you were bound by the entire law. That's what Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 5. He says, not one jot or one tittle shall pass away until all is fulfilled. It's not going to be that part of the law vanishes and part of it remains. Either you are bound by the entire law or you're bound by none of the law. So his Calvin's threefold breakdown of the law is quite problematic. If you don't believe it's problematic, get into a discussion with a Seventh-day Adventist who's advocating that we still have to keep the Sabbath today. They're arguing that the Sabbath day is a moral law, has been established since the beginning of creation. And if you buy the moral, ceremonial, civil breakdown of the Old Testament, you are going to find yourself in a lot of trouble. 
if you want to read some material that's opposed to that position, uh, especially against the Seventh-day Adventist position, I'd recommend that you read the Porter-Duggar debate. That's a really fascinating debate on the Sabbath issue. Uh, this threefold breakdown comes up in that, and a discussion of the old law is really helpful. Uh, the problem of Tidball's work is that he ends up, though he denies the threefold breakdown, he, st- he still advocates that all of the old law is still binding. It's just been kind of transformed. And what ends up happening is covenant theologians go to Jeremiah 31. They talk about the new covenant that's coming. And what they mean by the new covenant when they talk about it is that we are going to have a new nature. In other words, the covenant remains the same, but we have a new nature that is brought upon us by a direct operation of the Holy Spirit. What Jeremiah 31 is actually advocating for, as well as Paul in the book of Romans, is that we're still... Uh, here with free will, we have a choice whether we want to obey God or not. But the law itself, the covenant itself has changed. There was the old law which passed away, Hebrews 8 and 9, and it has been replaced by the new law brought in by Christ. And it is extremely problematic if we start advocating that Christians are still bound by the old law, especially the Ten Commandments. That's how it's usually framed. And so because of his overall application to the Christian life of the entire old law, I found Tidball quite problematic, and uh, he was also a little bit more technical in his reading. Now, the Bible Speaks Today series is generally a kind of an introductory layman's type of a commentary, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily easy to read. Um, they can be a little bit technical at times, so it's kind of like a moderate read, I guess, a moderate o- overview of a book. The next commentary that I picked up is the New American Commentary by Mark F. Rooker. If you've never read any of the New American Commentaries, I'll say this about them. I like the way they are structured, the way they're styled. Very nice binding, nice typeset. It's very professionally done. The writers who write in them are very good writers. They're very readable. They're geared more towards the layman audience as well. And Rooker was definitely in that line. There's a lot of positive things about Rooker. I think there's there's a lot of things that would be beneficial from reading his commentary, but there were two hang-ups that made me veer away from it. First of all, is he begins arguing that in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus is interpreting old law and correcting a misunderstanding of the law. I deny that that's what's taking place in the Sermon on the Mount. I believe that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes up on the mountain as Moses went up on Sinai, and he's not only bringing down law to the people, he's sitting in Moses' seat, he is acting as God, delivering the new covenant that Jeremiah 31 promised would come. And so when you start arguing that Jesus was just reinterpreting the old law, that becomes very problematic as you go throughout the rest of the Gospels, Matthew in particular. The whole law is binding, is what Rooker says, though it may be bound in different ways. And so he's kind of like Tidball in that he's problematic uh, in how the Old Testament law applies to the Christian. Uh, and he actually falls into Calvin's threefold breakdown of the old law that Tidball Tidball at least avoided. So at this point, after I got done reading Rooker and Tidball and others, I was a little bit discouraged because I was starting to wonder, am I going to find a commentary that is what I'm looking for? You know, has some good structure, has some good substance. The problem with Church of Christ commentaries that I've looked at is that they're kind of shallow. and It's not a whole lot of time spent there, not as much detail and structure and whatnot as what I was hoping for. And so I, I decided, well, Maybe we'll we'll use like a Mark Rooker, and what I need to do is do some assigned reading before we read the commentary on Leviticus about the Ten Commandments. And so I picked up a book called Tablets of Stone 
by John Reisinger. Now, John Reisinger is from a Reformed background, which typically means that he would be a covenant theologian, but John Reisinger is a very outspoken New Covenant theologian. And what that means is that he believes there is a great contrast between the old law and the new law. The old law was done away with at the cross, Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, and the new law of Christ was inaugurated. He does not believe that we should keep the Ten Commandments. He has some very, very helpful material on the Sabbath and why Christians no longer keep the Sabbath. He recognizes that the Sabbath was given as a symbol of the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai. It had not existed since the beginning of creation, though it was based upon the principle of the seventh day of God's rest. And so all in all, Reisinger is a really good guy. Though there was a problem in his book, and ultimately what steered me away from recommending Reisinger's book. Reisinger views there to be a great dichotomy in the Bible, grace under the new law only, uh, and law without grace under the old law. This It's worded by a lot of Calvinists as, in the Old Testament we had all law and no grace, and under the new covenant we have all grace and no law. That's just a false concept. There was grace under the old law, there is grace under the new. There was law in the Old Testament. There is law under the New Testament. A couple ways to think about this. In the Old Testament, God describes himself on many occasions as having Israel as his bride. In fact, he divorces his bride because she was unfaithful and went after other gods. Now, if there was only law and no grace, why did God offer them a covenant in the first place? And why did Israel accept? If the law is only going to be a curse to the people, why would you voluntarily place yourself under that curse, as the children of Israel obviously did in Exodus chapter 19. On that occasion, Moses comes to them and he presents this covenant offer from God, and the people say, oh yes, we'll do it. And he says, no, you need to think about this. And they go ahead and they commit themselves to keep the covenant. The reason they commit is because there's blessings or there's grace found in the covenant that is not found outside of the covenant. The curse of the covenant was if you broke the covenant, if you remained faithful to the covenant, God had many blessings in store. And so this whole all-law-no-grace thing in the Old Testament is just a false concept. They had sacrifice, which was a grace given to them by God, through which they could obtain forgiveness of their sins, which was anticipating the coming of Christ, the ultimate expression of God's grace. There was grace in the Old Testament, and may we never forget that. In the same sense, there is law under the New Testament dispensation. It's referred to as the perfect law of liberty. In John chapter three, in First John chapter three, John writes there and says, "Sin is a transgression of law." If there is no law for Christians, there can be no such thing as sin for Christians, and that's just a false, that's a false bill of goods. And so, because of Reisinger's dichotomy on all law, no grace; all grace, no law. It killed the recommendability of that book, and I've been struggling a little bit to find some good material on the Ten Commandments, and so my search continues. I decided to go back to looking at different books on Leviticus, and one that I picked up was from the Biblical Theology series put out by InterVarsity Press, and it's called A New, New Studies in Biblical Theology is the name of the series, and the title of this particular book was called Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? It's written by L. Michael Morales. Again, the title is, Who Shall Ascend to the Mountain of the Lord? It's written by L. Michael Morales. Now, there were some really, really good features of this book. It's a fascinating read. Uh, it's not really an introductory read. That's why I'm not going to use it as my introductory big picture view. But this is 
an incredibly fascinating read. He goes into a lot of detail arguing for the structure of the book of Leviticus being chiastic in nature. In other words, a one, two, three, two, one system. A chiastic structure is also referred to as Hebrew parallelism or concentric parallelism. And what it does is point one corresponds with point five, point point two corresponds with point four, and point three forms the central focus all by itself. And what Morales is arguing is that Leviticus is a chiastic structure and that the very center of the book is the author is the sacrifice of atonement. And so everything builds up to the sacrifice atonement and everything after it points backward to it. Not only is the book of Leviticus a chiastic structure, but the Pentateuch as a whole is a chiastic structure. Genesis corresponds with Deuteronomy, Exodus corresponds with Numbers, and right in the center in the heart you have God on the mountain of Sinai speaking forth his law in the book of Leviticus. This is a very helpful structure. He has done, Morales has done an incredible amount of research and work, has tons of evidence and references. It's, it's incredible. It's really mind-blowing. It's, the, the book is really a theology of the book of Leviticus, so it's painting that big picture of you. And in order to do that, what he does is he actually spends time developing the concept of trying to get back into the presence of God in the book of Genesis, and then the traveling to the presence of God in the book of Exodus, and then being in the presence of the book of God in Leviticus, and then traveling towards the promised land uh, in Numbers and a reminder of the presence of God in Deuteronomy, in the book of Deuteronomy. So, He's, he's arguing that Leviticus is a chiastic structure and the Pentateuch is a chiastic structure with Leviticus at the center, and that's why Leviticus is so vitally important, and Israel recognized this, and that's why it was so important in their life. Uh, one of the problems that Morales has is uh, I think he would he's going to veer off a little bit on the topic of the Sabbath. He seemed to be arguing that the seventh day of creation where God rested on that day, that that was, in fact, the first Sabbath, though it's never referred to as the Sabbath there in chapter 1 or chapter 2. It just simply says that he rests. When you start arguing in that manner, that's going to be problematic if you ever try to have a discussion with a Seventh-day Adventist. But anyway, I thought Morales' book was really fascinating. I'm about 100 pages into it, just really exciting stuff. But it is a moderate high read. It's not going to be your first introduction to the book. This is a substantial, very scholarly you know, 10, 12 footnotes on every page type of a read. So my search continued, uh, which led me to the Tyndale Old Testament Commentary Series, an older volume written by R.K. Harrison. And when I picked up Harrison, I uh, read through his introduction, and he seemed to be free of the problematic points that existed in Tidball and Rooker and others that I had looked at. He seemed to be generally helpful in, in explaining the structure of the book uh, giving some helpful insight on the topics of holiness, pointing out that Leviticus is kind of a misnomer because it's not just about the Levites, it's about the children of Israel as a whole and the special relationship they're going to share with God. It was, all in all, it was pretty decent. It was, it was really good. So I was pretty happy with that, and I went to order up some copies because I decided that's probably the book I'm going to use, and I realized that uh, the Tyndale Old Testament Commentary Series has replaced his volume with J. Scalar. Uh, again, that's J. Sklar, S-K-L-A-R. So I, I found that interesting. A lot of commentary series do that. Uh, Tyndale series has been around for a long time. It's geared toward laymen. And so every so often they will rewrite a book of the Bible. And they've done that recently, just a couple years ago, in fact. Sklar's commentary came out. And so I started doing a little bit of research on Sklar to see 
what the differences between his and Harris's commentary would be and if it's worth looking into. Turns out Jay Sklar was a longtime student of Gordon Wenham. And so when I read that, kind of light bulb clicked on. I thought, ah, I bet this guy knows what he's talking about because Wenham is considered the gold standard. So I, my, I was intrigued by it, I'll say that. Then I discovered that he did about 10 years worth of research before he wrote his Tyndale commentary series. He, he has a funny quote. He says, you know, I would tell whenever I told people that um, I was doing research for 10 years on the book of Leviticus, they would look at me like, why on earth would you do that? And others would look at him and say, well, at least you can't hurt anybody there. And he gets a good laugh out of that. And he's, he seems to be a pretty funny and genuine guy. But, you know, I think that's typically how people look at Leviticus. Why would you spend time reading it? Why would you spend 10 years worth of researching it? Well, one of the reasons is because you have so many fundamental things for the old law, the foundation of Israel, and typology and background information that you're going to have to understand if you're going to understand different parts of the Bible, like, for instance, the book of Hebrews. Uh, Scholar's commentary had a fantastic introduction. He has a great discussion on holiness, being in, uh, in a state of holiness, and also objectifying or demonstrating holiness in conduct, as is going to be seen in the work of the, the priest and their consecration. He understands the concept of forgiveness in the Old Testament and argues that people could actually be forgiven. They were being forgiven in advance of the sacrifice of Christ. That's what the Bible teaches in Romans chapter 3. Um, he also understands that the Old Testament law passed away, and the Old Testament law is no longer binding upon Christians. He tries to answer some difficult questions that modern readers have about things such as the dietary laws and the clothing laws and different things like that. All in all, I was extremely impressed, and I finally found satisfied because after doing, I don't know how many hours of research, this is a lot of reading and, and work that went into this, I finally felt like I had reached uh, found a book that is going to be helpful. He's very readable. He's intentionally trying to leave out technical theological words that go over people's heads and kind of bog them down. He's trying to make uh, it applicable and interesting to the Christian reader and tie back into that, that, old, that old book that was the gem of Israel. As a side note, I discovered later on that he has also produced a workbook to go hand-in-hand -hand with his commentary. I ordered a copy of it off of Amazon, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to sit down and go through some of his workbook and see if it's going to be beneficial in conducting a study like I typically do on a, on a weekly basis. And so there's a high possibility I'm going to be using his commentary and his workbook at the same time. So I just want to share all that information with you to kind of one, demonstrate the process that I go through in trying to find good reading materials on a specific book of the Bible that I've never looked for. You know, one of the first things I did when I was looking into Leviticus was I started calling several different preachers that I, I communicate with on a regular basis, and I started asking them what their recommended reading on Leviticus would be. And um, I was a little disappointed because I couldn't find any. Uh, they didn't really have strong recommendations other than Alan Ross's commentary by Brother Ron Corder. Um, I say I'm disappointed I, don't, I didn't have one at the time to recommend to other people, and there are other books of the Bible that I still don't have recommendations for. I'm trying to remedy that so that I can build my library and I can help other people build their libraries as well. I, I was frustrated also because a lot of commentary sets that cover the Old Testament, especially from Church Christ background like E.M. Zur or uh, Kaufman's commentary, they're not very helpful on the book of Leviticus. That's, that's my opinion. Even James E. Smith, whom I really like, is not very helpful. And so I hope that the material that I've gone through is helpful, gives you a background, maybe save you some money on finding, buying different commentaries on Leviticus. If you were to 
to perform that study. Um, I would suggest at this point checking out Jay Sklar. I will review his book in full whenever we are done reading it. That's going to be a few months off, but I'm going to read his commentary in its fullness, and I'll give an update on that whenever that time comes. Anyhow, hope everybody's doing well. Hope you enjoyed the program today. Remember to subscribe and share it with others. Give us some feedback if you have any questions about today's material that we went through, if you, or if you have another Bible topic that you would like to hear discussed, some reading suggestions on that field, or if you have a book that you would like me to review, you're welcome to send all those questions, inquiries, requests to christianresearcher at gmail.com. I'll be happy to take a look at it and get back with you. Thanks, have a wonderful week, and God bless. Better is our sacrifice. He paid the, he paid the price, the price. He paid it all upon the cross. No longer bound by sin or with eternal loss. He took my sin and washed it away. When I was immersed in that watery grave, I heard that gospel call because he paid it all.